Hi there, guys. Welcome back to the audiobook series, The Podstorm of Your Inner Game, 12 Principles of High-Impact Entrepreneurs, right here on The Matt Brown Show. This is Chapter 7, where we're going to be talking about belief and a really powerful principle about belief and mission. This is such, such powerful stuff. It's made an incredible difference in my life. It's something that is universal to all the successful people that I've had on my show. Billionaires on four continents, founders of some of the most well-known brands in the world today, from Cape Town all the way to Cairo and beyond. So if you have landed here, guys, this is Chapter 7. I highly recommend going back and checking out the other episodes and then proceeding forward from here. And remember, guys, I really would love to hear from you. If something that you've heard resonates with you, let me know about it. And you can do that. You can tweet me at MattBrownZA. And for a free digital copy of this book, you can get a copy at MattBrownShow.com. So without further ado, guys, here we go with Chapter 7 of my number one Amazon bestselling book, Your Inner Game, 12 Principles for High Impact Entrepreneurs. Chapter 7, Beliefs Others Can Follow, Player. Tom Asaka, international best-selling author. Episode, MBS 72 and MBS 105. Principle, I believe in my mission. A belief is not merely an idea of the mind. It is an idea that possesses the mind. Robert Bolton. Tom Asaka is the author of five critically acclaimed books, The Business of Belief, Opportunity Screams, A Little Less Conversation, and A Clear Eye for Branding all groundbreaking books that unpack new practices, frameworks, and ideas for success in times of uncertainty and change. His first book, Sandbox Wisdom, is a heartwarming story about a CEO's search for meaning and success in the world of business. When I first interviewed Tom, we discussed the business of belief and how entrepreneurs can use it to build great businesses, but at the same time stay true to themselves and ultimately their happiness. During our interview, Tom recounted an incredible story about belief from his time as the president of a startup of a medical device company. The company had developed a product that could help people with nocturnal hyperventilation, which basically means that they weren't breathing deeply enough during sleep, one of the leading causes of sleep apnea. He was presenting at a teaching hospital in the United States to the leading physicians in the world who were involved in studying the disorder. The meeting had been arranged by a sales rep who sold the product through a distribution company. It was a lunchtime meeting, so Tom had brought sandwiches for everyone, and he was at the front of the room with an overhead projector and clear pieces of plastic that you write on. At noon, the doctors entered. They were all dressed in their physician's scrubs, and they had their own stethoscopes dangling around their necks. They sat down opened up their sandwiches and looked at the documents in front of them, which were the results of the clinical trials that Tom's company had done with the device. He was there to explain those trials and how well the patients involved had responded to them. What happened next will be familiar to many entrepreneurs, even if the details differ. Tom took all the doctors in the room through the entire presentation, and when he reached the end, one of the leading physicians in the world just sat there, staring at him. For any entrepreneur who has pitched for funding, this is pretty much your worst nightmare. The physician said, Mr. Asaka, can I ask you a question? Tom said, sure, expecting a technical question. He believed he was ready to answer anything thrown at him, but instead he was asked, Mr. Asaka, as the president of the company, how can you come to my teaching hospital with such shoddy data? Tom's heart was racing. He hadn't been prepared for that. He looked around the room and saw that a few of the faces felt bad for him. He knew that if he walked out of that room right then and there, it was all over. 
you'd never get his device into hospitals or the endorsements of medical professionals. The 30 people employed in his manufacturing facility would be out of jobs. The business would be finished. He was thinking at the speed of light. On the one hand, the worst was busy happening. On the other, he knew the data was good. He had gone to one of the most reputable teaching institutions in the country to get that data. He realized that big medical companies, which could spend tens of millions of dollars studying thousands of patients, could get more data. But that didn't mean it was better data. They were a startup that couldn't afford to spend that kind of money, so they had done the bare minimum required by the FDA to pass approval of the device. With all this buzzing through his head, Tom's inner belief in his product and spirit took over. He threw caution to the wind because he knew he didn't have anything to lose. Instead of apologizing for the quality of his data, or even trying to explain where it had been sourced from, or why it was based on so few patients, he said instead, Doctor, do me a favor. Turn to patient 10. He opened the document in front of him, which was full of squiggly lines, physiological readings like oxygen saturation levels. To preserve patient confidentiality, there was no name on the data. And Tom said, Doctor, do you see those squiggly lines? Squiggly lines is not a medical term you would usually use with a doctor, but Tom was upset. Those squiggly lines are Jim Olson. Jim Olson lives in a little white house with a beautiful little picket fence, two adorable little girls that love their father, and a wife that adores her husband. No product in the marketplace could help Jim Olson. Our product saved Jim Olson's life. So if the minute squiggly lines and data mean more to you than people's lives, well that's the day you should get out of medicine. At this point, Tom pointed to all the other doctors in the room and said, you should all get out of medicine. And with that, he picked up his stuff and walked away, sweat pouring down his back. Tom thought his company was over. Instead, something magical happened. That same physician who until that point had never sat on a medical company's board because he didn't want a conflict of interest, phoned Tom and told him that he would sit on his company's board of advisors. That's how much of an impact Tom's belief in his product had had on that room full of doctors. From that point forward, Tom was a rock star because he was the guy who had told some of the leading physicians in the country that if they cared more about numbers than people's lives, they should get out of medicine. And he earned huge respect for that. The Business of Belief Tom Asaka's book, The Business of Belief, unpacks how the world's best marketers, designers, salespeople, entrepreneurs, fundraisers, educators, and leaders essentially get us to believe in what they are doing. For entrepreneurs in particular, if you're going to scale a business, you better be damn sure that your best asset, your people, believe in what you're building. Otherwise, that plane is going to fall apart mid-air. Tim wrote this book because he became frustrated working with organizations that were trying to get people to move one way, but without performance measures that supported the vision. In other words, the rhetoric and the reality were miles apart. The final blow was a visit to a CEO whom he had spent a week with 12 months earlier. He had returned to review their progress, and not only had they made none, but they were doing almost the exact opposite of what he had recommended. When he asked the CEO what he had done wrong or what they disagreed with in his methodology, the CEO candidly said, Nothing, Tom, but remember, when you left, people had to go back to their jobs. This struck Tom as a profoundly interesting statement. What he was discovering was that knowledge doesn't make people change their behavior. You can fill people with as much knowledge as you want and it won't amount to anything. In fact, you'll be wasting your time. What moves people is their personal desires. So if people don't have the desire for whatever it is that you're hoping for them to adopt, 
whether it's an idea, a product, a service, ethos, whatever it is, if they don't have a personal desire for it, then they are simply not going to do it. Beliefs are driven by desires. They are not driven by knowledge. What does this mean for the business owner? If you're not tapping into people's desires, from your employees to your customers or your partners, then there's nothing you can say or do that will get them to come along for the ride. You can try, but you'll end up like Tom, spending 20 years getting frustrated before you figure out why people don't change. Belief is a desire that's driven by a wish. So to have a belief, you have to have a wish for something in the future. Otherwise, why change what you're doing right now? There needs to be a driving force that says you think you're going to improve something or build something of value. With this in mind, Tom shared his rickety bridge metaphor of belief with me. What is the one thing that will get you across a rickety bridge spanning a deep chasm? This is what you have to cross to achieve your intended outcome. It's scary, possibly dangerous, definitely a challenge. So what's on the other side? What's pulling you? As you start stepping across that bridge, you're looking for evidence that tells you that the bridge is safe and that it makes sense to keep walking across it. Without something compelling on the other side, you're not going to take the risk. Now consider what happens when you're working with customers or employees. You're taking them to a place of change, and they're looking for fear signals, anything that tells them that they shouldn't be braving the bridge. Any opening, and they'll get off that bridge, particularly given the amount of choice we are inundated with today. If you want to change someone's behavior or lead them over that bridge, you need to show them that you can improve their life. You need to show them that the bridge is safe. You need an inspiring message that turns on their feelings for whatever it is that you're offering. Once that gets turned on, their rational mind comes along for the ride and starts looking for trouble to make sure this bridge is safe. How you handle this has a lot to do with what you're selling. If you're selling something like a bottle of wine that anyone can pick up at the supermarket, you have to know how to appeal to their aesthetic taste. How do you give them control over the purchase? How do you make the pricing such that their identity is in line with what they're picking up? There's far less risk associated with trying a new bottle of wine compared to adopting a new software system. Ask someone to change their religious beliefs or vote for a new political party. These are near impossible tasks. That's how huge the role of belief is in our choices and our identities. Ask someone to do something that's really tied to their sense of self and their story. And if they find anything that seems even slightly unsafe or unstable, they will tune it out and walk away from it. The more you understand this, the more you can address it in yourself as well. It's incredibly important to understand the step-by-step process of how influence and belief are created so that you don't derail yourself without even realizing it. Most executives and entrepreneurs have said some version of this sentence. The customer just doesn't understand that our offering is better. We have to give them more information. They just don't get it. Here's the secret. They're not interested in your information. They want the easiest and safest path to the future that they're envisioning for themselves and their business. They don't want any stress. They don't want to waste time. They want you to get them there. And if you can do that, they'll come along with you. But if you can't do that, or if they don't trust in the process, they'll just walk away. People are always going to do whatever is easiest for them, or what they think is going to give them the best experience, while supporting their story about themselves. All beliefs are just the foundation of the story we craft around ourselves. That's the next paradox. As entrepreneurs with ambitions of scaling, we need to go out into the marketplace and forget our own stories. 
We need to be scientists experimenting with what does and what doesn't work in the marketplace. We need to figure out everyone else's stories and tap into those, forgetting our own. Always remember that all the entrepreneurial greats whom we admire so much also had to go out into the market and improvise. They also didn't know what they were doing. Jeff Bezos didn't know he would one day start making movies. He was just trying to sell books. But because he was out experimenting, he made discoveries, shifted direction, tried new things and redeployed resources. He wasn't afraid to go out there and do it. Nothing gave him the right to do anything. He gave it to himself. If we relate this to inner game, the principle is deceptively simple. If you don't believe in yourself and your mission, how will you ever convince anyone else to believe in it? You need to start with yourself, really interrogate what your mission is, and most importantly, conquer your self-limiting beliefs. Debugging limiting beliefs. One of the most compelling truths I've learned about success in business is that the only thing that stops you from getting what you want is the story you keep telling yourself about why you can't have it. This story is either going to make building a successful, purposeful business possible for you, or it will only serve to reinforce it as a pipe dream. Here's the thing. You can only grow a business to the extent that you grow yourself, which means it's important to foster a strong growth mindset right from day one. One of the greatest gifts you can give yourself as an entrepreneur is to carry out a fearless and moral inventory of your limiting beliefs, because these are what determine your inner narrative, and ultimately, this narrative controls your life, whether you choose to admit it or not. Henry Ford said it best, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Here's the problem. Limiting beliefs sit underneath the surface of your conscious mind. They determine whether we're going to dent the universe or whether the universe will put a dent in us. In my own personal case, I almost didn't start podcasting. I'm an introvert who doesn't like strangers. I never have. I'd much rather hang out with people I know and like. In the early days of podcasting, I remember very clearly how excruciatingly painful it was to sit down with a stranger CEO for an hour, holding a conversation. There couldn't be any awkward moments or silent pauses either. It had to flow. It had to sound natural. And most importantly, I needed to sound like I was actually enjoying myself. When I launched the MapRound show, I had plenty of experience in business and a lot of self-confidence. I just hated the idea of talking to a stranger and everything being recorded, essentially being a prisoner to my own words live on air. A limiting belief was at play. I just didn't realize it at first. Imagine this. I'd be interviewing someone in the same city, even suburb, as myself, and I'd still do a Skype interview. I didn't invite my guest into the studio with me, and it took me a little while, but I eventually realized how completely ridiculous the entire situation was. It was almost farcical. I knew I needed to figure out why I reacted to strangers in this way. Turns out there were two factors that combined when I started my show. The first is one we're all familiar with, stranger danger, driven into us when we're kids. The second was more personal. I used to have a huge fear of public speaking. Turns out buried in my subconscious was a massive limiting belief of being judged by my peers. In essence, I was terrified of saying the wrong thing, being judged by my peers, and consequently not worthy of their love or respect. How messed up is that? If I had managed to overcome that limiting belief... I would never have been able to pull off an event like Crypto Trader, a live show I did in front of 600 people and broadcast in real time to a live audience in over 52 countries around the world. So much of what we believe and operate stems from our past, and we just let it sit there instead of facing it. We never take the time to deal with it. 
It's all fine and well to talk about scale and chasing the big things, focusing on our goals and wanting to 10x our businesses, but none of that is achievable if we don't face ourselves and our own inner reality. There are so many pressures and stresses that impact our lives and abilities as human beings, and our ability to build something of purpose and meaning is tied up in them. If you want to build a successful business, whether that's a business of scale or a lifestyle business, you need to face them. You need to figure out what's happening below the surface because you, like me, are a product of your experiences. Like the stranger danger example, these can sit beneath the surface of your consciousness for years, manifesting in behaviors that can cripple your ability to execute to your fullest potential. If we're all able to be brutally honest with ourselves, as well as introspective, I believe each of us will find an internal limiting belief linked to self-worth. We have to face these. If you hate the idea of cold calling, then you probably have a limiting belief that affects your ability to call complete strangers and pitch yourself, business, or product to them. If you have a limiting belief about your ability to compete toe-to-toe with the best entrepreneurs in the world, you need to recognize it so that you can address it. Unfortunately, most of us let these kinds of limiting beliefs run in the background putting the destination of our lives on autopilot. But if you have the courage to explore it, you'll start tugging on one piece of the string and the rest will begin to unravel. Therefore, the question becomes, do you have the courage to come to terms with yourself? How open are you to overcoming your greatest fears, your fear of not being good enough? How open are you to losing it all in the pursuit of building a global brand and business? How open are you to experimenting, to trying, failing, and trying again? In case you think I'm making this all up, there's a very real syndrome that most entrepreneurs struggle with at one time or another. It's called imposter syndrome. In a nutshell, imposter syndrome is a psychological pattern in which we doubt our accomplishments coupled with the persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. I was suffering from imposter syndrome before I started writing this book. I knew the lessons I wanted to share and the value of those lessons for myself personally, but also the people who have been listening to my show for over five years. There's so much we can learn from each other, but I was still paralyzed by doubt and fear. And then I remembered that I'd been through this before. It's not a once-off that we can face, get over and move on. It's a process. Mainly it's about getting to the truth instead of just buying into the fear. I also remembered my original mission with The Matt Brown Show, helping entrepreneurs and business leaders succeed through information sharing at scale. This book is just an extension of that. There are two techniques I use daily to help me to get to the truth of any challenge I'm facing or a solution to a problem I'm thinking about. The first is reflection through meditation. Reflection is one of the most underrated yet powerful tools for success as an entrepreneur. Reflection helps us get to the truth of our individual experiences because we do not learn from the experience itself. We learn from reflecting on the experiences. Journaling and meditation are proven ways to help provide clarity on the lessons being taught to us as we scale our businesses. Whatever we don't reflect upon is usually not learned from or retained. Because the human mind does an awesome job at distorting, generalizing, and deleting information, The second technique I use is called triangulation. This is a method I've developed that helps me avoid the distorted and false view I have of my own reality and instead get to the heart of any matter. I take matter X and ask three other people their opinion. Let's say I wanted to pivot digital kung fu away from technology businesses and focus solely on offering a personal branding service to entrepreneurs. I'm all gung-ho about the idea, 
but I have no evidence to prove that my new shiny pivot idea is going to work. To get to the truth, I need to bring other views into my own perspective, and so I call three other people in my network to get their views. It's important that they feel like they can be completely honest with me, and of course, you shouldn't be looking for a pat on the back. The reality is that most people will never tell you that you suck to your face, so make sure you let them know you're looking for their honest opinion, and don't react badly if that opinion doesn't align with your own. You'll never get an honest response again from them if you do that. These people must be trustworthy, experienced in the thing I'm thinking about, and ideally people who I hold in the highest regard. Inevitably, if all three views point out that I'm smirking my socks about this pivot idea, then of course I need to bin it and carry on with the business in its current direction. But should two of the three suggest pivoting, then my own hypothesis has been validated, and therefore the possibility of the idea being a good one can now be put to test in the real world. My point is this. If you only ever work with your own model of the world, you're not operating in reality. You need to constantly debug reality and get to the truth. Limiting beliefs are the same. Face them and you'll come out stronger and ready to deal with reality. The power of story. If people could easily change their inner narrative, there would be no need for psychologists and coaches. But behaviors are a good indication of beliefs. If you aren't investing in your business's growth, even though you know you should, then your own behaviors are telling you something about your true beliefs. Here's the problem. They may not be true. That's the really interesting thing about beliefs, right? And it's incredibly paradoxical. Simply believing in something doesn't mean it's true or even that it's going to happen. The marketplace is advanced. It's an ecosystem. There must be someone else out there that has a strong desire to dance with that same belief that you have. Tom has experienced this himself. A little over 12 years ago, he had the idea that he was going to help revolutionize the radio industry. He was writing for one of the American magazines that dealt with the media industry. And he recognized that if the radio industry didn't start stepping into the digital future and rapidly, it would be left behind. He wanted to create a media platform that connected the radio to the internet as a seamless experience. Because he's not a coder, he needed to find a designer who could help him. He was determined that consumers would love it. He found his designer and together they started building a platform for the radio industry. At one point, the designer had it almost completed. Tom had poured a lot of money into the project and the designer, who was a kid based in the UK, who lived with his mom and coded from a basement, had spent 12 months designing it. Tom said it looked good, but he wanted it to look good on every single browser out there. The kid was flabbergasted. Did Tom even know how many browsers were out there? But Tom didn't care. He just wanted the kid to figure it out. So what the kid ended up doing was setting up two computer screens, launching the program in a browser on one screen, looking at it, and making the changes on the other screen. He was going backwards and forwards like this, losing his mind and getting completely frustrated. Then, because of his pain, he said, Wait a minute, why can't I create a computer program that goes out and takes a screenshot of how my web page looks on every browser. And that's exactly what he did. He built this program to help himself finish Tom's project. He then told some people about it. Turns out he wasn't the only one feeling that same pain. Someone asked him if they could do that with their emails, take a screenshot so that they would know what it would look like in client browsers before they sent it out. Based on that, 
He built a product and then a business, and today he's a multimillionaire. Tom's product, on the other hand, was a complete failure. He believed consumers would love it, but he went to the radio industry, and they didn't believe that they needed it. They thought the internet was a passing fad. He hadn't gone to the people who needed it, or felt the pain, or even who would love it. That made all the difference in the world. The kid addressed a pain point with the people who needed it solved and built an empire. There are a few points to consider here. First, your beliefs won't always be correct. That's as true for your subconscious beliefs as it is for your conscious ones. Be open to new data points and be willing to adjust what you think. Second, personal belief is important, but it's not enough. At the beginning of this chapter, we discussed how everyone around you needs to buy into your mission. This is critical. You must find people who either share your belief or whom you can inspire to get on board. Without that, you're a one-man island. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Welcome back. Uh, chapter seven, I feel, is where a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of these golden threads are really starting to come together. And one of the biggest things that's, that happened center stage in this chapter is, is the idea of belief, that it takes belief to support a business or brand on the customer side, that it takes belief on the side of employees, that it takes belief on the side of entrepreneurs. But what's very clear here as well is that belief is driven by desires and not knowledge. And at the end of the day, and you've touched on this previously, we're also busy telling the story of a product or brand and educating, educating, educating. We forget the importance of belief in the narrative. So, and I, this is something that your group of companies does very well and is always focused on. How do you switch that narrative to really put your customer or your employee or whoever you're engaging with in the center of the story so that they really believe that you understand who they are and that you're going to solve their problems? Well, belief's driven by wish, right? So you have to wish for something. And I think one thing that's universal about all human beings is that we all aspire to have a better life. So, you know, it's like if you go back 10 generations in my family, each one of those generations wanted a better future for their kids. And the same thing applies to you, right? Always. I mean, that's the whole focus of everything we do. So this is the thing that's true about everyone you're trying to market to, right? So for me, there's no B2B or B2C. It's almost like H to H, human to human. So if you recognize that we all aspire to become more or better versions of ourselves tomorrow than we are today, then that is the precursor to understanding that we all wish for something more. And we believe things about our own 
sort of models of reality, like your own existence is unique to you, right? But whatever that is, you have a wish for a better future. The trick then as a founder entrepreneur, whether you're trying to build a brand, market a product, a solution, a service, whatever that is, is to recognize that that is the truth and to understand what dynamics underpin or characterize the problem that you're trying to solve. Right, And this is why I say market the problem first, then the solution, because people want to know what's in it for them. Does this person understand or does this business have the product that truly understands my pain, truly understands the problem that I'm trying to um, resolve or truly understand the aspirations that I have as an individual. So when you understand these attributes and you're able to build personas and profiles of customers and all this kind of cool stuff, which is all now going into technical marketing, gimbo jumbo, uh, super ding dong marketing and category design. But when you figure out all this kind of stuff, then the, the trick to success has got very little to do with anything else. So I totally understand the theory of that. And I, I think all of us live that in our daily lives, right? Because we know what we look at on social media, what we're willing to engage with, what we're not willing to engage with, what attracts us to certain ideas. And yet then we turn around and we do some marketing and we end up falling straight back into that trap of here's my solution, here's my solution. So can you give me an example of how you've made the customer the hero in your own businesses and how that has switched the way you handle the narrative and the story that you tell. So probably the best example is when we pivoted digital Kung Fu from being a media content production house only towards focusing on the technology sector and creating pipeline and leads and doing a whole bunch of B2B stuff. So the way that we tackled that particular pivot was aggressively. And part of that uh, strategy and that approach was to execute hard but with a very particular set of guardrails in place. Those guardrails were about marketing the problem, right? And in the process of developing a narrative or a story, there are certain elements that always go into a story. There's a character who has a problem, who meets a guide, uh, and then, you know, discovers the solution or overcomes a certain set of problems or challenges and then at the end discovers the solution and the status quo is upgraded at the end. So there's a formula towards uh, storytelling that's universal and we hardwired for stories. So what we were very careful to do was to position ourselves as not being the hero. The way that you do that is by making sure that the customer understands that you understand the problem. Right, so all of we created something like three hundred different digital content assets. We went hardcore on media because when you pivot, you only get to pivot once. <laughs> so you better be aggressive, you better be deliberate, and you better make sure that you understand how to position yourself as the custodian of the problem. Because this is the thing. This is why we created a new category called storytelling technology, right? So storytelling for technology. So it was all about storytelling. You're great at tech but you suck at storytelling. That's true, right? Uh, and so this was really our process. And so we unpacked that narrative and we cut it up three ways from Sunday so that when we launched this thing, and by the way, we still get leads from a campaign that we launched three years ago. We still get phone calls from content and assets that are sitting out there in the public domain because they're still relevant today. 
So it is all around understanding that you should not be the hero. How you position the customer as the hero is by painting the picture of what the dream looks like. So when we do um, any kind of lead generation campaign or pipeline generation exercise, we always launch creative or assets that talk to the to the nightmare. We talk to the dream. So the nightmare is all around, well, what's the consequence of you not engaging with us now or not buying this product now uh, versus the dream, which is, okay, so you bought this product. What does now your dream look like? Well, your data is secure. You're able to scale your applications. You're able to sell more stuff, whatever. Um, and then the third thing is all around the DNA, right? So why are you the ones most accredited or most worthy of solving that solution? Are you the one that can make that dream happen for me? Are you the one that can take that nightmare away? So it's a formula. There's many uh, different formulas. There's story brand you can have a look at. There's Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey. But whatever it is, pick something and execute. This book is just full of so many great ideas that you explore. But the reality is a lot of them are also tough to implement, right? And one that stood out for me particularly was in this chapter, and it's all around brutal honesty. Because as much as you can understand, okay, the, the importance of the story and that narrative, you've also got to be able to, and we spoke about this earlier, be self-aware. Becoming self-aware starts with the ability to be brutally honest. And, and that's never fun for anyone, right? I mean, I don't particularly like looking deep inside and saying, okay, where are my faults? Where I, what do I need to, to work on? what I need to admit about what I'm good at and not good at. What tips do you have for how people can get started on this process for themselves as leaders, for their teams and for their businesses? The process of having tough conversations with yourself. You're right though. I don't think many, well, I personally don't like having tough conversations, right? But I have them because they're necessary. So one of the uh, great sayings, pro pro probably from my podcast, I can't remember who said it, but you know, you can you can determine the success of an individual by the amount of difficult conversations they are going to have in their life or that they have in their life. But the hardest conversation you can ever have is the one that you have with yourself. Because if you don't come to terms with yourself, how are you supposed to come to terms with your future? It's about recognizing that you are a certain person today, which is flawed. You're not perfect, right? You are imperfect. I love people who think that they're untouchable uh, or perfect because they've got like a million followers on Instagram. Well done. Uh, but, you know, you are always becoming something else. So we always go, we're always going to learn and grow in the process of, you know, our existence. But in reality, that whole journey of, transformation starts with that first conversation that you have with yourself. Are you good enough? Why do you feel that you're not good enough? You know, do you have what it takes? Do you, are you the same as Richard Branson? Do you believe that you can solve the world's biggest problems? So that is the conversation that really is necessary to have from day one. Uh, but as I say, you know, business is personal. People say oftentimes that business is not personal. It's 100% personal. It's always personal because a business can only grow to the extent that you do. So a business for me is just a, literally a lens on who you are. Uh, it's a lens on your values, your beliefs, uh, and many, many aspects that determine an internal set of principles or code or inner game, right, that you use daily, whether consciously or not, to execute. 
whether you choose to persevere or whether you choose to, to, to quit. These are all things that we all wrestle with every single day. Uh, but it is all personal. So this is really what's so valuable about a business, right? Is that it's a magnifying glass on where you are flawed. It's a magnifying glass on where you are strong. Uh, and the, the key is to recognize where you are weak and to build a team around you that can pick up the things that you suck at doing. Uh, and so you figure that out, then things start to happen for you. I think this is the perfect launch pad into chapter eight, which focuses very much around accountability and acceptance. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.